Sendbird is a company that makes messaging, chat, and voice and video APIs for developers. The biggest company in this category is arguably Twilio, but Sendbird works at a higher level of abstraction, so it's not really a competitor with Twilio. There's more of an emphasis on developer experience and visual components. John Kim is the CEO of Sendbird, and he joins the show to discuss the engineering and competitive positioning of his company. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Today, there are a lot of different options for how people can build chat and voice experiences into their applications. When you started Sendbird, what were the available options? So just for a little bit of context, we had built like three, uh, chat three or four times uh, across a couple of different companies at that point. So when we started building uh, Sendbird, we were actually building a VDC application. So we were on the buyer side. So we tried a couple of open sources out there, uh, very low level, all the way up to like EJBRD, you know, CRMQ and things like that. A lot of them were mostly designed for like laptop experiences, not really mobile optimized, didn't really come with like the shiny bells and whistles you'd expect out of like WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. So we kind of did that as our like alpha version and we ripped it out. Then we went on to things like Firebase, real-time database, you know, synchronizing services. What ended up happening was, you know, chat is a pretty well-known kind of like a sample application for a lot of these um, uh, services. But again, if you want to add, you know, some of the uh, modern experiences, you have to build a lot of workarounds around that. And also the um, uh, infrastructures back then were kind of hard kept at, at certain concurrent connections. So we ran into a lot of issues. So we ended up ripping that out too. So we ended up uh, building everything from ground up. So surprisingly, not a lot of SDKs or APIs back then weren't really optimized for iOS, Android, or cross-platform experiences that were like lightweight. And that came with a lot of kind of the modern features. So it turns out it didn't really have a lot of choices. And so you decided to start a company around that. Yeah, well, our company actually uh, started out early 2013, again, building B2C community for moms. So finding local moms in your area with some rich kids, buying, sell, selling used baby products, you know, doing playdates and stuff like that. So we've been doing, building that for about two and a half, three years. And around 2015, that's when like Mirror Meeker came out. They, uh, you know, a trends report saying messaging apps took over the world. You know, Telegram, WhatsApp, Kakao Line, uh, messaging apps was like the most frequently used apps around the world. And so we're really trying to use kind of that trend as messaging to our own uh, apps capability. And that was about like three, four years into the um, journey already. So what was the first germ of an idea? What was the first product you wanted to work on? So that was kind of the, the community that while we were building that, we were running out of money. We didn't get to the scale that we wanted to, you know, kind of raise the next, you know, big institutional round. So we we're trying to really figure out, you know, how to survive, how to get to the next level. And then uh, when we kind of released this, you know, messaging capability for our own, our own application, a lot of like friends in the industry were also building their consumer apps kind of reached out like, hey, we're also like trying to add messaging capability for our own application. What do you guys do? So we kind of walked them through our journey. And they're like, why do we just like skip all the process and just use the stuff that you guys built? And obviously, like I didn't have any background in like B2B. So I didn't, want, I didn't know what to expect, but um, we kind of did a weekly, like kind of weekend hackathon, pulled that onto SDK and start selling on the side. And we had like 20 paying customers in two months. So we applied to Y Combinator with that idea, which actually became Sendbird today. And what were the challenges in building the first product? Oh, geez. A lot. Obviously, you know, when you think about kind of a lean startup framework, what is the minimum viable product? I think initially how we defined our problem was slightly different from kind of the everyone else who are also trying to build like a chat SDK back then. I think a lot of people kind of started out, you know, trying to build a one-on-one messaging. 
but because we had our, our previous startup was a gaming company that we sold to Gree, so we were our core use case we were trying to build was a massive scale chat room. So how do how many people can we fit into a single chat room without it falling apart? So we were really focused on the scalability piece, and then that obviously uh, is a pretty fairly complex problem because you know sending a single line of text to someone else is fairly you know simple, but if you have you know uh, ten thousand people into a single chat room, every time you send a message. 10,000 messages get broadcasted. If you add things like read receipts, typing indicators, stuff like that, everything becomes exponentially more costly to the servers and you know, more complicated. So really trying to optimize around scale was pretty one of the most difficult thing because we, for whatever reason, we had some luck early in the days. We were able to sign a couple of like large consumer applications and large back then was like you know half a million users on a monthly basis. So it wasn't like Facebook scale. But just being able to handle you know, half a million users, they were all kind of trying to do date, local, you know, location-based dating. They were sending a lot, a lot of messages at scale. So we really struggled initially to build a scalability. But hindsight now, we're what, handling 100 million plus users on a monthly basis. So we came uh, far. Yeah, I would say scalability, getting that right, was one of the most difficult challenges. How do you handle a giant multicast application like that? It's just really, I guess, trials and errors, right? So initially, when we first started out, again, it was like a done over a weekend kind of a hackathon. So it's obviously wasn't like really well architected and stuff like that. So we went through probably three big major overhauls in our uh, infrastructure. But now we have layers or, or servers that goes through WebSockets to handle real-time con connections. The HTTP servers handle kind of API. There's a, a, a horizontal scaling it almost like yeah, every single layer, whether it be uh, connecting to mobile devices, the cache layer, the performance queue, the workers, the databases, every every layer has to scale horizontally. And also because our customer base is pretty global, just making sure that all of those things work across different geos, I think took quite a bit of effort. And then the I think the unknown kind of the non-trivial non challenge is that every customer, depending on your vertical, have a very different traffic pattern. So to give you an example, if you're like a ride hailing service, usually there's like two strong peak, uh, peak times, right? The commuting hours pre-COVID versus a food delivery app might have a very different uh, traffic pattern. Uh, we also serve a chat feature for like apps like Reddit. Reddit has a very different traffic pattern. So being able to understand the traffic pattern, what features do they use more or less of, and how many you know, users on average do they um, have in the group channels, things like that. So just being able to making sure that our infrastructure can scale to cover all of these different use cases and traffic patterns was a pretty uh, interesting and difficult challenge. So at this point, we're just talking about the chat application, right? You have SDKs for a variety of other applications. So I'd like to exhaust the complexities of the chat application before we get into other subjects. Is there an area of the chat paradigm that you'd like to go deeper on? Yeah, I think there are a couple of different use cases that are really popping out these days, right? If you look at by verticals, you know, they're kind of like one-on-one -on -one messaging, but really deep, uh, uh, rich interactions, whether it be, well, dating is one, but like healthcare, uh, doctors talk to patients, we have to make sure the chat is feature rich, not only feature rich, but it's highly, highly secure. So we have to get things like, you know, HIPAA compliance, ISO 27001, SOC 2, Type 2, and stuff like that. So going really deep with rich set of features that, again, you would expect out of WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, and stuff like that, I think that's really, really key. But I think the other kind of interesting area is the really the, is this emergence of like live events and live streaming, live commerce, so especially because of COVID. Now the e-commerce experience, concert, conferences, everything has pretty much gone virtual. 
And of course, there are solutions like Zoom and whatnot, but some companies do want to uh, run these events on their native platforms. For instance, we uh, serve NBA. And so if you're watching NBA game today uh, with the League Pass, if you see a chat sidebar while you're watching those games, those are being powered by us. So how do you handle massive scale, anonymous chat? There are a lot of abusers. So how do you handle profanity, filtering, moderation, you know, freezing those channels, banning and muting those users at scale is also a pretty difficult problem. So we're layering in things like machine learning based moderation. Also, when people send you know, photos or videos, we want to actively monitor multimedia as well. So there, you know, we're filtering out things like violence or nudity and stuff like that. So things can get really pretty complex. Again, like I think the sending the text is, rel- is probably the most easy part. Now, how do we layer other kind of features to make sure the quality of the messaging experience goes well? Those are the, where the true valuation uh, value creation comes into play. So I think that's kind of what we've been working on. Hope I'm answering your question correctly. <laughs> yes, you are. So the complexities of those domain-specific applications, like e-commerce, for example, do you want to build and expose uh, specific APIs for those verticals, or do you have generic APIs that just service everything? I would say about 89% of our APIs are generic or generalized in nature. Um, so we have like, you know, rich data transfer layer where you can attach things like, you know, in case of uh, e-commerce, uh, sellers can recommend like product recommendations. They can show carousels to recommend different products. They can sell, send coupons. We also have like banks as our customer. So when user want to send money to other user through messaging experience, like you can imagine things like Venmo or whatnot, but a lot of some of the bigger banks around the world also have their own application and facilitate user experience like that. So being able to send money and highly secure data as well. And then, you know, again, community apps like Reddit, you might want to recommend subreddits, posts, do upvotes, downvotes, all within messaging experience. So being uh, able to kind of handle this variety of use cases, but also come up with a generalized solution so that any vertical verticals can kind of utilize those features, I think has been a pretty important success factor. But there are certain vertical specific features like dynamic partitioning we have for massive scale chat rooms, right? Basically what it does is if you have, let's say 50,000 people watching live event, if you fit in 50,000 people and if they're all chatting once, you literally cannot follow like any, whatever they're saying in chat room. So we are, we smartly partition those people into different uh, clusters. So we keep the engagement rate pretty steady, but when also the uh, uh, population or the audience dies down, we kind of re-merge those channels. So the level of engagement stays pretty flat. Uh, and these features are only utilized by like live events, you know, and gaming companies, cause like on the dating app doesn't really matter. So there are certain APIs and SDK features that are, I guess, tailored more to a couple of these different verticals. Could you talk about another specific domain, maybe like ride sharing, for example, or or delivery? Tell me about how ride sharing or delivery applications would use your APIs. Yeah. So you can kind of think of our core value proposition as enabling user-to-user communication. And when we say user, again, could be food delivery person to end customer, seller talking to a buyer on the marketplace, uh, driver talking to end customer. So we do serve on generally call it on-demand service or on-demand verticals like food delivery. Uh, obviously, because of COVID, food delivery has really exploded. And our primary use case is to help the food delivery people talk to the end customer. Right now, today, some of the um, apps around the well, still, still in the United States, use like SMS. So you, you might uh, order a food and 
you might get this SMS message come from this random phone number, say, hey, this is about your XYZ order, and I just dropped it off in front of your house. So you might get that uh, through SMS. But once there's a split second experience where users, when they see it, because they don't recognize his phone number, there's a kind of like a disconnect and you don't know who this delivery person is. And to get the context, you actually have to go back to the application to see who the delivery person is. So uh, by making that an in a messaging experience, you kind of uh, kind of uh, contain all of those conversations within the context of the specific order. So later, if you want to go back and if there's a, there was an issue, you want to uh, make a claim or report an issue to the platform, you can simply report those things right within the app. And the agent will have a full visibility into those conversations and you know, what went right, what went wrong as well. So just really uh, making the seamless experience exist within the application uh, has been the kind of the trend for the food delivery apps and kind of similar to ride hailing too, talking to the, uh, the driver over within the uh, messaging experience. And the benefit of that is because it's not SMS, it's just within the application, the um, platform can also offer things like you know smart replies so that the drivers don't really have to like text and drive. They can simply c- click a button that automatically send a template-based responses. So uh, that also uh, drives up the kind of user engagement and uh, drive down the cancellation race, things like that. So that's kind of what we've been doing pretty much across the globe. And we've seen that uh, these verticals really grow massively in the past, I would say, 24 months, literally uh, anywhere across the globe from, you know, not just US, but EMEA, as well as APAC. So we've talked a little bit about the usage on the front end. Can we talk a little bit more about the infrastructure on the back end? So like, tell me about the infrastructure you use to handle a gigantic multi-channel chat application or a ride-sharing platform. Yeah, just to, I guess, walk through literally the server architecture, right? So we today we currently uh, sit on top of AWS. We also use other third-party services like Google Cloud, for a certain um, uh, micro or premium, what we call premium features. But overall, we sit on top of AWS. Our, our database is uh, pretty much uh, utilizes uh, Aura database. And there are certain instances or certain regions where we use like MariaDB and stuff like that. But Aura database has scale. And we have like added what we call worker layers that kind of auto scales and do smart things within to manage the databases. We use RabbitMQ for queuing. On top of that, we have like Redis for cache layer. And that really diverges again towards the, uh, what we call edge servers or socket servers that handle kind of real-time connectivity. Because if you think about chat, uh, a lot of that is uh, real-time connections. You have to look like, like no online presence, typing indicators, everything's kind of real-time driven. So we use a lightweight WebSocket uh, servers for those edge connections. And then for, uh, again, API, we use you know, standard HTTP servers. And then uh, the load balancers sit on top that ultimately connects to our, our Sembert SDK through you know, TLS. 1.2, 1.3. So that's kind of how we uh, have layered. But I think what's interesting is how we connect those services in between to make sure that we have uh, reliability to handle different kind of traffic patterns. So the real secret sauce in the configuration and the software layer that we built to connect those services in between. And also things like worker, how do we make the worker more smarter so that we can handle traffic spikes, concurrent connection spikes, you know, uh, there are spike, there could be spikes in messaging if some some companies sending out marketing messages instead of human sending messages. So how do we really scale those things uh, uh, dynamically uh, or in automated fashion to handle different traffic patterns? And not all customers are on multi-tenants. Uh, we have like eight different global multi-tenant regions uh, across the globe where a lot of our customers sit in, but some of the more highly secure, uh, security sensitive, you know, companies may have what we call dedicated instances so that 
we have these services siloed out for those customers. And we also have to be you know, smart about it. We can't just have all the servers you know, up and running all the time. So we have to have some uh, traffic predict prediction uh, capability so that we are you know, uh, ramping up the servers and you know, also dialing down the servers based on their traffic patterns that we uh, accumulated over the previous uh, time periods. So there's uh, some, some level of kind of auto-scaling component that hopefully uh, makes our you know, cost efficient as well. Does that help? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Can you tell me more about what AWS infrastructure you use and, and what are the services that you focus on the most? So we, on the database side, I mean, we use Aura database pretty heavily. And uh, you know, for the load balance layer, um, we sometimes use what Amazon provides out of the box, but sometimes we also install our own um, native load balancers. But I think over time, we've been trying to um, abstract, create abstraction layer for our services so that we're not really locked into the specific AWS services so that we can, uh, well, while we're in the process of containerizing most of it, so we can kind of deploy to any kind of multi-cloud structure. We have also some visions around how do we enable our customers to host our services on top of their infrastructure? Because some customers, for whatever compliance or security reasons, might want to. So it's not like on-prem, but it's, it is like private cloud deployments. So we've been trying to decouple a lot of these services. But right now, today, I would say the, the thing that we use prob- probably the most heavily on AWS, probably Aurora database, I would say almost like 50-50 in terms of everything else combined, like EC2 and everything else combined versus like database, I would say it's almost at 50-50 kind of load. So we have talked mostly about, about the chat at this point, and I'd like to get into talking about real-time video and audio how much is that a paradigm shift from talking about chat? Like, can you reuse the same infrastructure to build those new new experiences? I think the answer is half yes, half no. So for video calling, voice calling, you know, we use, we have acquired a company called Roundy earlier this year to uh, buy a piece of IP around like media servers, how to, you know, process uh, through servers and you know, do cloud recordings, like what we were doing on Zoom and do conference calling and stuff like that. But also for um, lightweight clients, we also, use things like WebRTC to do peer-to-peer voice calling, video calling, very lightweight for uh, somebody more, I guess, customers that don't really need kind of massive scale or cloud recording, stuff like that. So there's a different piece of technology that you, we use to build audio and video calling. But now on the actual server side, whether it be scaling, you know, those API server for those kind of services or being able to uh, um, understand the DevOps um, areas or, you know, how to scale what, how to profile these kind of servers and bottlenecks and stuff like that, that, that a lot of that knowledge can be reutilized from the things that we learn from chat. Because again, we know the traffic patterns of a lot of these verticals and those traffic patterns tend to you know, correlate pretty well with chat and voice and video calling. So to give you an example, like Hinge is a, a pretty well-known dating app. We've, we've been partnering their chat for a few years now. And recently, I believe during COVID, they rolled out a video dating experience and that has been a massive trend around the world, especially in dating space, is to how do we get people to meet each other virtually? And so we've been using or powering their audio and video calling capability as well. So obviously, you know, what, what people you tend to do is they, they'll get on chat and once they get kind of get familiar, familiarize themselves, they'll start trying, you know, audio or video calling. So the, the traffic patterns are very, very well correlated. So being able to handle servers and, and being able to scale things, do auto scaling, all of those things, we do uh, utilize a lot of experience we've got uh, from chat. And I think the uh, on the front-end side too, because we we uh, provide everything through what we broadly call assembler platform, and 
inside there's a you know kind of a sender user instance so that a sender user can do text chat but also do audio and video calling so ultimately people don't have to do like multiple authentication and we're also rolling out a UI key UI kit that will have chat voice and video or everything like natively integrated so this uh, the hand handoff between text and voice and video calling will be extremely uh, smooth and seamless so there's some some uh, advantage of using services like sender for developers so when you started building video and voice experiences in Sendbird, was Twilio already available? Could you have just white-labeled Twilio? That's an interesting question because um, we, when we rolled out new features, we have historically have you know built, bought, and partnered. For instance, our translation API is, is a wrapper on top of Google's translation API with a little bit of cache layer on added on top. So we make, you know, the translation calls a little bit more efficient and, you know, more responsive. So we have done that in the past. For voice and video calling, there are certain experience and handoffs where we want to kind of uh, um, really dig deeper and again, really make the developers uh, integration experience a lot more smoother. And it's harder to, I don't know, work with uh, so we essentially have to do either of two things. One is become a, a Twilio customer and build our entire server on top of them and kind of extra, uh, as a wrapper or allow our customer to plug in, let's say Twilio or anyone else's Agora or not, their app ID and API keys to kind of tunnel or their traffic through their server so they can, if they have an existing relationship with Twilio or, or message bird and stuff like that, they can continue to use their existing relationship and integrations there. So there are a couple of ways to do it for voice and video calling because of certain details around user experiences and making it really, really seamless and also taking advantage of some of the YAMP chat infrastructure we wanted to use. We decided to go straight to building. We also had done internal POCs and testing with customers and those kind of experiences went really well. That what really gave us the confidence to build it. And also we, because we set out the goal to acquire a, a piece of technology in the team that have experience doing this, we probably looked at, I would say, 148 companies through Crunchbase, Angelus, and stuff like that, and just general internet search uh, that deal with like WebRTC and media servers. And then we kind of narrowed down to 48. Then we met with like, uh, I believe about 12 companies and we uh, discussed more in-depth in four companies and we ended up giving offer to one to acquire the company. So it was a pretty rigorous process to own this technology. Now, with that said, we don't want to do anything that's non-IP based. We want to be the best in class for IP based communication, but for non-IP, like again, like SMS or email, we do partner heavily with us, uh, other parties. So we do have customers, again, that we provide like uh, SMS fallback option that you can punch in like Twilio, some app IDs and you know, API keys to continue to use the services that they have. So for those services, we heavily uh, lean towards partnering those that are non-IP based communication layers. So you say the difference between build versus buy, you are content to buy things like translation, things like email and SMS, but you want to build from scratch something like video or voice. Yeah, if it's again, transfer over IP layer, then we'll we'll tend to build it. But if it's like non-IP based, non-real-time communication layers, uh, then we'll, we'll tend to partner. And how does the engineering for those two types of product verticals vary. So if you're building a real-time chat or voice system versus building a white-labeled SMS experience, how does the product development process vary? It's a really good question. So if you think about the value uh, APIs are creating, right? I kind of 
taking a step back, I look at tech companies into kind of three different value creation, right? One is hard tech, like the AIs and the MLs and the autonomous driving. You know, people know it's hard, it's sexy, investors want to invest, engineers want to build. Uh, second category is productivity. How do you make uh, developers or anyone's job easier, whether it be CRMs or you know, any kind of like automated productivity tools? And the third category, I roughly call it messy tech. It's not a formal category, but I, I see this everywhere. It's really creating abstraction layer for a lot of messy stuff. And SMS is a very, very good example because you know, usually engineers don't want to go talk to 20 different telcos around the world and kind of negotiate SMS prices to you know, serve their customer. They will obviously want to work with a company like Twilio, kind of similar with Stripe, uh, although like fraud detection is a pretty messy problem, hard and messy, but also dealing with credit card vendors and banks around the world. A lot of that is very, very uh, messy problem to solve. That takes, uh, it's not just tech technology, you have to have like commercials, legals, compliance, all those things. So we kind of see chat almost in a similar way. Chat turns out it's not as simple as people think. It is quite messy because there's a lot of edge cases around traffic patterns and user experiences. So I think engineers who like creating abstraction layer to solve messy problems so that their customers who tends to be either product managers or engineers uh, really can build a very, very elegant solution very rapidly that are modern, they're scalable, they're reliable, secure. Uh, um, those uh, kind of whether it be preferences or those people who enjoy building this kind of uh, abstraction layers will truly enjoy building stuff like uh, uh, Sandberg. Now, with that said, um, again, the, the value creation on the actual dealing with the third-party external dependencies like telcos and the banks, those are, are you know, those are not fun to be honest. So uh, I think there's a lot of value that is being created there because of that for SMS companies have to still pay the telcos there. So their gross margin tend to be a little bit lower. So there's, there's some trade-offs there, but I sincerely believe that Tully has done a wonderful job of creating this kind of um, uh, abstraction layer. But anyone who have been building kind of these kind of API products will thoroughly uh, enjoy uh, working at a company like Sandberg. And I think the overall product management cycle or product development and release cycle, um, I think the the, from development to the release cycle is pretty much similar, but I think the initial kind of uh, hash things and planning things out, how to kind of handle that messy layer, usually probably is uh, somewhat different. Do you see yourself as directly competitive with Twilio at this point? To be honest, not really. I mean, they do have a competing product, but it's pretty clear that their focus is on kind of creating the um, IP layer for the telephony infrastructure, you know, the pro programmable facts, the um, call masking, a lot, of the, a lot of their revenue drivers are really um, creating the abstraction layer for telcos. Now they've kind of now went on to the omni-channel play, how to get you know SMS, voice, all those th things like email and integrate into kind of the customer experience side. So they've been focusing on building Flex. Now they're taking that uh, step further to by acquiring companies like uh, Segment to adopt CDP. Whereas uh, we've been 100% focused on creating the most powerful experience when it comes to uh, you know, messaging. So a good mental model is if you think about a mobile application, about 95% of what Twilio does happens outside of the mobile apps, right? The SMS application, the emails, the fax, most of it happens outside of the application versus what we do. 95% of what we do happens within the application, within the UI and the UX and the unread message counts and typing indicators, all the buttons, you know, your contact list, blocking the users, so 95% of our feature set really focus on uh, giving the developers the power to build the most modern and sleek messaging experience or in a UX.
so at this higher level of abstraction than Twilio, I think there's a few other API companies like I think PubNub comes to mind. It's kind of a a narrow, well, it's not narrow, but it's a it's a very distinct level of abstraction where you just are giving developers good APIs for building nice user experiences. What are the other companies in this space? What are the other companies you see yourself as competitive with? Our biggest competition today is actually the in-house uh, engineers, the high-pride engineers who, want, who believe they want to and they can build everything. And our biggest losses came from in-houses who wants to continue to build it themselves. With that said, I think the smaller section of the competition do come from probably the Twilio's of the world. PubNub is, I don't say relatively recent. Their focus on chat has been more recent than not. Because, you know, if you just look at their name, they're a PubSub company that deal with, you know, a real-time data transfer for IoTs. I think chat, if you look at their API designs too, is very, very focused on not necessarily chat native. So you can kind of start seeing that. If once you kind of recognize that pattern, then you kind of see it in the API design and the features and the focuses is still around that kind of lower level on real-time data data transfer and synchronization. Versus, and there are other companies like Pusher out of Europe that have been doing something similar. So they're competitive to uh, PubNub. They also read something called ChatKit, but they shut it down and uh, we inherited a lot of their customers. So there are a couple of players that, that are kind of in the lower level real-time data infrastructure layer that have been trying to come up one layer h- higher to serve like chat API. And obviously, you know, our fundraising stories and things like that, that have certainly caught attention of some of those um, companies. And they're, I think their CEO reached out to me and uh, their CTO also reached out to us as well. So we have some dialogues around that. Competition, I think there are a few other vendors. I think there was a company called Ablazic out of India, QuickBlocks out of London. I think there's a new company called Stream that have been focusing on activity feed, I believe, and that recently kind of expanded their offering to chat. Um, but I believe Sandbird is the only real company that have been fully focused on IP-based messaging. And uh, we're currently the market leader. And um, yeah, hopefully we can we aim to stay that way. What are the biggest engineering problems you're focused on today? Oh, gosh. We never thought there would be this endless feature request. We thought messaging would be something like, oh, we'll build it once and very, you know, sell it efficiently. But it turns out the, the industry is moving really quickly. If you think about companies like you know, Slack, Discord, not just Facebook Messenger, but like WhatsApp, everyone around the world, and even like things like TikTok, everyone has some level of real-time you know, interaction capabilities, and they're constantly rolling out new features. The issue is their end users, whatever consumer apps end users are using these apps too. So when they see it, they expect that their, their whatever their favorite app to have those features. Like even if you think about read receipts, it was not really a super popular feature or you know, common feature, but now almost every messaging apps have them. And then there's delivery receipts, which is slightly different from read receipts. So if you, you know, message things on Facebook Messenger, you get this gray box and blue box, the checks, the, the empty checks, stuff like that. Those although it may look very small, though every one of them actually come with a lot of complexity. Now, when you know, Slack came out with the threaded messaging, now everyone's threaded messaging. You know, when you send photos and videos, you want thumbnails generated, resized. So it, there's constant evolution of the user experience. And again, and this has to come from not just one platform. You have to make the feature parity with iOS, Android, making sure that it works that has backward compatibility with old operating systems, but also uh, the Android world has been forever diverging with different devices, 
across different geos. So push notification that works in US will not work in China. So a lot of those things just creates more and more and more mess. And again, every single time when a new feature comes out, we have to make sure that it's compatible across all of these different platforms. Now with gaming, uh, with COVID, gaming industry is booming. So we have Unity that went just public a short time ago. So we have Unity plugin now. Companies want also want Unreal Engine support. There's new development. Things like React is so common now, but there are things like Flutter. All those things are uh, keep popping up. So we have to really keep up with the broader developer ecosystem. And if you think about these developers too, there are what roughly 30, 40 million software developers around the world today. And I assume that number will double in the next couple of years. So there's a massive uh, population who come with different expectations and different needs around the different services they're trying to build. So making sure that we stay on top of the game and we provide all of those um, kind of a toolkit or leverage to all of these engineers so that they too can provide the best in class user experience for their end users. So yeah, the difficult, most difficult challenge is how do we keep up with the most modern experience? Again, without compromise and reliability and scalability and security across multiple platforms. This is a, yeah, it's a pretty messy and, and tough challenge. How does that translate to engineering management decisions on your part? <laughs> these are really wonderful questions. I mean, we ask these questions ourselves all the time. So I think there are a couple of interesting vectors here. One is what is kind of the next gen, uh, actually taking a step back, it's like one thing that we realized is that customer expectation from about Sandbird has changed over the years. In the beginning years, when we first launched the Y Combinator in 2016, customers didn't really come to us asking for answers. They had requirements and they wanted us to fulfill their requirements. So it was a very customer driven, uh, we build whatever customer wanted to build and we try to generalize it as while we were building. So it's a, I would say almost 100% customer driven, customer enablement engineering. That was literally our product roadmap. But fast forward, you know, two, three, four years, now customer actually come to us and ask, hey, you know, what should we build for messaging? So they are, they come to us for uh, for advice on how to build messaging experience, but also, you know, what's uh, what should they be thinking about, you know, in the future of messaging on how to build an engaging user experience? And nobody really has a crystal ball for 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 that, but we have some ideas. So now we are in the process of kind of bifurcating our effort around product and engineering, how do we uh, allocate resources so that we focus on the hard, you know, long-term problems, things like machine learning-based moderations and uh, smart replies, you know, uh, filtering uh, sensitive information, uh, per personally, uh, personally identified information, stuff like that in a smart way. So it would be what we might call a product roadmap kind of engineering. And then there's still a hefty uh, load on serving those customers, like customer enablement engineering, serving the big customer that comes with you know different scalability needs or different traffic patterns or different use cases. So how do we continue to serve the customers very rapidly? So I think that that comes with a different challenge. And if you kind of you know peel uh, one more uh, layer into that, every engineer is a human being, right? So have, people have different career aspirations. They might want to really hone in on their mastery of building messaging. But some people might want to build new features. So they might want to, instead of doing customer enablement engineering, they might want to do product roadmap. They might want to do something on the machine learning side. So how do we manage the morale, the career development of all of that at scale? We have close to 300 uh, people in the company now, actually 220, but we have uh, open headcount for another 50. So about uh, more than half of our people is in R&D. 
So managing an engineering team that over 100 people that are only focused on building the best messaging uh, experience possible. Now with you know, voice and video, that also is a pretty non-trivial problem. And if you think about other companies, right? If we are not doing this work for them, then they'll have to hire quite a significant set of engineers to build out a modern messaging experience. So again, we're kind of creating the abstraction layer for our customer from engineering and product management perspective as well. But internally, that is a you know, real, real, real challenge and struggle. How has your approach to infrastructure management changed over time? Um, management to infrastructure. So we have a dedicated team that the overall cloud infrastructure management team that uh, handle all of the DevOps and SREs. We also have a trust and safety team that takes care of the, all the compliances and securities. So there are really two teams that kind of owns that. I think one benefit we have of having multiple offices around the world, we currently have you know seven offices, and but two macro ones basically here in the United States, San Mateo, and then the other is in Seoul, Korea. So having that, we have 24-7 eyes on the servers. So that, that is kind of a benefit of having multiple you know, uh, offices with different geos, even when you're small. So that came with some level of advantage. But now a lot of the uh, monitoring is pretty much done automatically, uh, automated with a lot of different monitoring tools and you know, logging systems. So in the early days, it was all kind of manual brute force. If we get a ping, then people, everyone, including our CTO, would just dive right into the servers, everyone kind of going through the logs and stuff like that. But now uh, we've built enough of what we call health checkers that constantly monitor different API calls, latencies, you know, reliability, security, all those things in real time. So we get proactive alerts. If something traffic pattern is out of whack, and before even it, it disrupts the service, it alerts our internal team so that you know we can kind of proactively start ready ourselves to um, handle any kind of potential incidents. So I think we've built a pretty robust uh, process over, over the years, but you know, obviously it was, there was a lot of trials and errors over time. Yeah, I guess that's pretty much it. So what about a specific infrastructure response, like a massive scale up? How do you handle like a massive scale up in traffic today? Really two ways. One is, you know, proactive and within proactive, there's automated and, and sorry, practice so predictive. So one is automated predictive scale up. And then there's also scheduled uh, partnering with customers scale up. And then also there's a reactive, right? There's unexpected spike in traffic, then how do we you know, scale up and scale down? And obviously, we use things like reserve instances, spot instances, and you know, normal instances, and stuff like that. But ultimately, I, I think the real knowledge comes from the understanding the traffic patterns, especially with large customers and their verticals. Having that knowledge and experience that we accumulate over the years gives us a lot of ability to what servers, uh, what services we need to scale up and what services we don't need to scale up because we know where the bottlenecks will hit by verticals and use case. So that's kind of our secret sauce. But uh, the other thing is, again, well, I guess the secret sauce kind of feed into the predictive engine, uh, but also the scheduled ones is, let's say, a sports game or, or I guess mostly sports game or the live conferences. We know exactly when those things are happening. And also customers have historical data of their users or audiences and how many of them have paid for tickets or online tickets. So we coordinate with the customers. We set calendars, customer calendars, so that it alerts our internal you know, DevOps team as well as our customer success and solution engineering. So everyone's kind of knows when those big events happen so that we are also kind of rating ourselves and we have on-call engineers uh, scheduled around those times so that 
we can respond to customers within the SLA that we have in place with those customers. We have you know, multiple different layers of support plans. So based on the SLA, we have different teams get ready for those uh, serving those customers. And again, these are like massive events, like the NBAs, the IPLs. Uh, by the IPLs are probably the one of the largest sports leagues in the world, Indian Premier League uh, with crickets. So by uh, working with customers very closely uh, on monitoring these massive live events is uh, also quite important. So that trust and collaboration with customers is also really not an engineering issue, but it's a a very, very important uh, business problem to solve that goes hand in hand with engineering. So yeah, that's kind of the proactive side. Again, reactive side is just all all know-hows that we accumulate over the years, which serve to scale at at what threshold, at what rate, and how fast do we dial down or how do we, how long do we keep the service up and running? Pretty much all done uh, in automated fashion. So I think those are kind of our, our the, the secret sauce and the knowledge we've built over the years. So at Sinbird, you take care of the some components of the UI layer as well, right? It's not just the infrastructure layer? Yeah, there's UI layer, what we call UI kit. There's also sample application. And then uh, there's a client-side SDK. And there's server-side API. So there are a couple of different layers, but if you had to yeah, think there's a UI UX layer and then SDK, which is like really the uh, the feature and the network transfer and the API, which is server to server. And how do you allocate engineering resources to those different areas of the stack? That's a wonderful question. That's a question that we are actively um, asking ourselves. We have internally what we call uh, core and edge kind of a strategy framework. So basically core is something that we absolutely have to get right. You have to do a lot of like testing, quality assurance is super key. Whereas edge is kind of like experiment, new features, you know, private beta with customers, which requires more of a speed than the, uh, I'd say quality or edge handling edge cases. So it's, we, we should you know think of it as roughly, you know, 80-20 or 70-30 depending on, on the areas you're focusing on. So UIKit initially started out as kind of a, a, the edge or a, the edge initiative where, where we had a handful of people, but now uh, the UIKit has been adopted so well by a lot of large and small customers. We are allocating more and more resources into it, especially the synergy you get from not just having chat, but making sure uh, chat and voice and video works seamlessly. Also within chat, we have like group channels, uh, massive open channels, you know, super group channels and stuff. There are different kinds of channels that come with different shiny bells and whistles. So how do we uh, make sure that all those features that are available to a customer has been an increasingly value creating, but also a difficult challenge. So we've been allocating more resources into that, but roughly, you know, we kind of look at it in a fractal way of, you know, allocating, you know, 80, 20 or 70, 30 and in a cascading fashion, if that makes sense. What are the products that you see yourself expanding into most naturally recently in the near future? There are a couple, a couple of vectors. So we are kind of the long-term vision for the next three, five years to how do we build out this data uh, developer platform where we provide the best in class to build real-time interactions between human beings, potentially as well as, well as chatbots. So if you think about the from user's view, what the users get is you know they can send text, voice, and video, which is their primary mode of communication. In the future, potentially like AR and VR, but right now it's text, voice, and video. But what are services adjacent to that that can be value additive? Things like, again, like moderations. How do we go from like regular expression to machine learning based to deep learning based moderation so that our customers don't have to hire, you know, 100 agents to look into 
you know, reports and, and, and users like abusive behavior. So automating more of that is certainly a, an important piece. And other things like understanding the actual conversation, like sentiment analysis, keyword analysis, a lot of analytics. So we recently rolled out something called advanced analytics, but we're adding more and more on top of it. So for instance, like, again, to give you an example of MBA, if there's a live game that's happening, the service providers like NBA will probably want to understand, you know, what people are talking about during those games. Are they excited? Are they angry? What teams are they rooting for? What players name are they mentioning? And what is the sentiment around that? So they, they can get those data, use those data to re start reprogramming their actual program, what video clips to show, what scores to show in what way, so that it actually creates a very powerful feedback loop. Same with gaming. When gamers start, you know, using words like "oh, copy" or "hack" or you know, uh, duplication, they they can proactively monitor those keywords to know, okay, something's happening within the game. That's why those metrics are going up or down. So they can also proactively fix, fix those bugs. So there's a lot to be gained by having the uh, understanding of what's happening in the community channels. So, like again, analytics, analysis of the content is super important. And then, you know, just more basic or but important stuff like push notifications. A lot of our customers use us to power their user to use their messaging, but also sometimes they use it to send announcement messages broadly to every user or a certain segment of the users. And then how do they track open race and then get the users to re-engage with, uh, engage with the application. So handling this kind of push notification at scale that is driven by campaigns, but also how does that all kind of sit in, let's say, a sing singular notification center, which shows all of their user messages, as well as their company marketing messages, announcements, not notifications, all those things in a single place. I think it's a pretty uh, powerful area, important area where we can create a lot of value for the customer. So there are a lot of adjacent areas that we can continue to build, build or, again, buy or partner on. That's great. Well, John, is there anything else you want to add about Sendbird or product development in general? I think this is a long-term value creation. So I, I guess taking a step back, API economy is here to stay. And I, I can tell you because I, as an engineer, I hated buying stuff. I always wanted to build everything myself. The, my next best solution was looking at open source community, but I really heavily relied on the full control and having the full understanding of the product we want to build. But the software industry has gotten so big, so complex, so rich, that the end users will not be willing to be patient with kind of a half-baked product. So now as engineers, we have to really rely on making sure that we're building the core, but partnering and buying all of these things that are non-core to our business to really expedite our, our go-to-market and also level up our user experience. I came to kind of realize that uh, over the years while I was building my second startup, and especially with Sendbird, yes, we, we kind of live and breathe every day. And that is kind of the future of the API economy is here to stay and will only get bigger and bigger. So the real then knowledge comes from understanding and prioritizing what to build, what to buy, and when to buy, who do we partner, being able to assess, evaluate different vendors really rapidly, doing POCs with them, uh, integrating them in the right way, all those things will become such a crucial knowledge to engineering. So I'd encourage all the engineers who are listening to this to really you know, think about what the API economy means for the careers and the future of software development. Okay, John, that sounds like a great place to close off. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is great.